Some of you came from homes that maybe even were Christian homes or maybe weren't, and you can look back and say, yeah, my, my father's sins really messed us up, or my grandfather's sins really messed us up, or the way my brother and I fought, or the way that my children squabble now, or you can just look at the sin in your home and see the damage it has done, and, and, it, and it breaks your heart. And this is a story that helps us process that, because we're going to see that happen in a home and in a family in the story we look at today. The other one is something a, a little more unique to our age. There are a lot of Christians right now, especially Christians my age, uh, who are looking back on some of our heroes. And one difficulty about the information age now and all the info we have access to is we are figuring out how deeply flawed some of our Christian heroes are. Uh, some of you have looked up to men like Ravi Zacharias or Mark Driscoll or Perry Noble or high-profile Christian leaders who have just tanked or in some cases been revealed to be complete frauds. And not only this, but throughout history there are examples of, of people like this, heroes, theological giants who did one or two really grievous things to deeply disappoint us and we look back and we say how could our heroes do such such awful things uh, one that 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 breaks my heart a lot when i look back at history is jonathan edwards uh, the, the sort of one of the founders of the first great awakening preached in in the early 1700s really humble man ordinary preacher just preaching to his congregation and the lord broke out revival hundreds of people in a somewhat rural area in new england in northampton started coming to Christ, almost a whole generation in his town. It, it changed the tenor of that town in New England. And then their children and their children's children uh, throughout New England in that day wound up being people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And, and, and you look back sometimes, you read the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Not all the people who wrote that were Christian, but those biblical ideas were baked into our Constitution in, in some ways. And a lot of that is because of the influence of Jonathan Edwards, two generations before them, preaching to them and having such power in his preaching. What, what a great man, a giant of a hero he was. You can imagine how disappointed I was when I learned that through his ministry as a pastor, uh, he owned probably six slaves who were kidnapped. Bought them in the market. There's a receipt for a 14-year-old girl named Venus that he bought. He defended the practice of slavery. And then we look back and we see this disgusting scar in our nation's heritage. And we say, oh, if Edwards had gotten that right and turned from it and taught right on it, would we even be dealing with this difficult legacy we have now as a nation? And so here's a, here's a hero of the faith who just did something so grievous that it breaks our hearts. And as Christians, we look back, and we're like, how can that be? How can, how can our, 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 some of our founders, some of our heroes do these kinds of things? Well, the people of Israel had similar problems. This family we read about in Genesis was their founding fathers, and they had deep flaws. And we were about to read of, of just how messed up Israel's founding family really was. As we dive into this story, we are going to see four characters from whom will come the nation of Israel, God's people. And all four of their deepest flaws are going to come out in this story. And it is going to read like a daytime soap opera. I mean, it's ugly stuff that they do to each other. And what we're going to see happen is, on one hand, there are real consequences for their sin. Like, it rips their family apart. 
And on the other hand, the Lord God says well beforehand, here are my purposes, here is what I'm going to do. And their deep and grievous sin does nothing to stop God's plan and his purpose. So we find a deep lesson in that. Deep consequences for our sins, even when they run rampant among the people of God. And yet, we can do nothing to thwart God's good purposes for us. That helps us process some of our fallen heroes, some of the difficult things we are dealing with. Uh, I'm going to read to you the whole story this time. And what we're going to do is we've got several warnings against the great sins these people commit. And then at the end, an assurance that even our sin can't stop God from accomplishing his purposes. It will probably take two weeks to go through it all. We'll get through some of the warnings this week and next week we'll come back, but I want to read the whole story to you even though it's a little more than a chapter. We're going to start Genesis 26, last two verses, verses 34 and 35, and then we'll read through chapter 27 as well. Here's the story. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am, and he said, behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and, field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat of it and bless you before the Lord, before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man and Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, and obey only my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and he took and he brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands, on a smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and he said, my father. He said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now, now sit up and, and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. And then Isaac said to Jacob, but please, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. 
And Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and, and said that the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And then he said, well, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and, and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father, Isaac, said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and he kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is the smell of a field the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be anyone who curses you and blessed be anyone who blesses you. As soon as he had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau's brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. And yes, he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, he's now taken away my blessing. And he said, have you, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given him for servants. And with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days for mourning my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise and flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. And stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. And then I will send and, and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? And then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the Lamb, what good will my life be? And then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise and go to Pet and Aram, 
to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples and that it may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban to the son of Bethuel the Aramean the brother of Rebekah Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Naaboth. The words of the Lord. It's a long story and it is rich with meaning. We spend these next two weeks unpacking it. So you may read that mess of a story and wonder, okay, what is the Lord saying to me through that holy mess? And here's what he's doing. He's doing two things at once. He is warning us of the dangers of sin when it runs rampant among the people of God and when it makes its way into our homes. And at the same time, he is assuring us of the, of the limits of our sin. That though we can do great damage to our lives in rebellion against God, what we cannot do is thwart his purposes against us. So he gets us great comfort as we look at the flaws of the leaders around us and even our own flaws. This morning, we'll look at two, three, or four of the warnings that are in this text. And next week, we will come back and we will finish the warnings and then go to the assurance. We'll probably just split this into two weeks. So here are the first of, of five warnings this text gives us of the bitter fruit that sin can reveal in our lives. First two go together, and they come from these last two verses of chapter 26 in Esau's marriages. First two warnings are against redefining marriage and the bitter fruit of marrying outside God's people if you are a believer. Again, these come in the last two verses of chapter 26. We see there Esau comes of age, he's 40 years old, and he marries two Hittite women, two women of the land. And there are two deep problems with this, one of which you probably already sense intuitively. He marries two women and not one, a redefining of God's design for marriage. The other one being that because of the promises that he was due to inherit and winds up not inheriting, uh, it, it was a, a terrible idea to marry women of the land in that day. We'll, we'll go through both of those and, and pull meaning from both of them. So first of all, uh, we have read thus far in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, uh, the Lord makes the man and he makes the woman, and then he designs marriage and brings them together. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and unite to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here the maker is making marriage. I give this to you as a gift. A man, a woman, together in a home, in their bed. Often they bear children. This is my design for it. And we have seen many times in Genesis people tinker with that design, and it reaps bitter fruit for them. All right, first we see a man named Lamech. He's the first one to take two wives. Takes two wives. 
and he sings a song to them that sounds like a gangster rap song from the 90s, just breathing thuggish threats against his wife, showing himself to be a violent man to bring them in line and bring them into submission to his will. Speaking of murdering children, here is this awful man. So the first one to take two wives is this horrid, wicked man. And then we read of Abraham, Esau's grandfather, taking a second wife and then a third wife and the bitter fruit that that reaps in his life. And so we got not only God's design, but people deviating from it and it bearing bitter fruit. Esau looks back to that and learns nothing from it and takes at the same time two wives from the get-go. So he takes God's design for marriage and he tinkers with it, he changes it. And we see what happens immediately. They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So immediately, the bitter consequences of tinkering with that design are there. There's the first warning. The other's a little more nuanced, a little more complicated. Uh, Esau chooses to marry women of the land there in Canaan, Hittite women, which normally wouldn't be a bad thing, but there are particular promises he is due to inherit. And one of those is that his descendants would one day come back to this land and take the land from the descendants of the people who are currently dwelling there. So like your descendants are gonna come back and take the land from them. That doesn't work if your descendants and their descendants are the same people, does it, right? Yours can't take it from them if you join in marriage, bear children together, and your descendants become the same people. So, so it was very important for Isaac, Esau's father, not to marry women of the land. He saw this pattern before him, but he deviates from that marries outside of the people of God, marries women of the land. So two deep flaws there in Esau's actions. He marries outside of the people of God, and he tinkers with God's design for marriage. This bears bitter fruit in his life, so we see there that redefining marriage reaps bitter fruit. And we see that marrying outside of God's people for believers also reaps bitter fruit. Often, well, when the Lord brings us into marriage and brings us into a family, there are deep promises and even a commission that we have inherited from him. So so if you're a Christian father or a Christian mother or wife or husband, part of the promise God has given to you is a commission to expand his kingdom by reaching the nations for him, taking the gospel into whatever place you work and whatever place you do your shopping and anywhere you get to go and even in your home, raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, teaching them the ways of the Lord God, breathing the gospel in all that you do, bringing them to church, a God-fearing home and a God-fearing house. This is part of what the Lord wills and desires for those who follow him. And the truth is, doing that is so difficult, next to impossible, if you have yoked yourself to a spouse who does not believe these things. How hard is it to build a God-fearing home when you're yoked to a spouse who does not fear God? How hard is it to pass the gospel on to your children when your spouse doesn't believe the gospel? 
How hard is it to make priority decisions for your home and, 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 and exercise hospitality and live in Christian virtues when you are going this way with your life and your spouse is going the other way with your life? Now, some people find themselves in these situations and the Spirit of God is there to help in difficulty. There are people around you who could attest to both of these things. Yes, I wish my husband were a believer. Things would be much easier when it comes to living for the Lord, but God is there to help me. The Lord helps us in this. This. But the Lord does not want us to intentionally get ourselves into that situation. And so he says to us, don't be unequally yoked. Right? For people of God, don't marry outside of the people of God. Because it is so hard to be joined to someone and pulling two different directions. Esau is a prefiguring of that here when he's got the promises of God and he joins with those who don't have the promises of God. And so we see the, the bitter fruit, the warning, Christians don't marry outside the people of God. Now again, if either you already have or if you were married as unbelievers and you came to Christ and your spouse didn't, you, you know that tension. I don't have to tell you, you're familiar with that. And I want to assure you the Spirit of God is there to help you. But Christians, if you can avoid it, don't get into that situation. That's our first warning against marrying outside of the people of God. The other warning there is against redefining marriage, which always brings bitter fruit for the people that do it. Why is that? Well, because it's God that made male it's God that made female. It's God that made the male body and God made the female body. God that made the male heart and the female heart. It's God that designed marriage and said, I made these two to come together just like this as one man and one wife. They're married, then they come together. They raise a home together. The one who made male and female also made marriage. And so to tinker with design for gender, to tinker with design for marriage, to, to, to tinker with any of this is to take what God has built beautifully and say, ah, I want to do it this way see how it works. And it doesn't work. It reaps bitter fruit. When a, a man and a woman are, are sitting in a bar and the man buys the woman a margarita and then they leave the bar together, they are headed down a road that leads to heartbreak. And when Christians preach against that, we're not doing it out of hate, we're doing it out of love because we know the heartbreak that it will bring them. She will wake up perhaps the next morning to find him searching through tinder to find another girl and find his attention waning he will he will find that this girl and the next girl and the next girl don't satisfy his heart and he will sink into despair and we would not have that for anybody and so no matter how unpopular it gets we would preach against it why because it reaps bitter fruit in people's lives when when a married couple in their 50s or 60s realizes that they've had as much happiness in each other as they're going to have and says you know, I think it's time we bring in a third and fourth person into this bed. They are headed down a road that leads to heartbreak, a recipe for competition and envy and quarreling and fighting. Why would we preach against that? Is it because we're full of hate for those who aren't like us? No, it's because we love those who aren't like us, and we see the bitterness that it brings. When two men decide they want to try to be married and build a home together, they are headed down a road that leads to heartbreak. And so if they would rear at us in anger and say, you are filled with hate to preach against us, we say, no, we're filled with love for you and you are headed down a road that leads to bitterness and a heartbreak. Don't do it because we, because we love people. And we see just a little prefiguring of that here as Esau just, just pushes aside God's design for marriage. I'm going to marry two women. And our intuition says, yeah, that's a bad idea, right? That's going to bring bad fruit. What our intuition might not say is any tinkering with God's design for marriage 
is going to bring bad fruit. Uh, a home where the husband loves the wife, sacrifices for her, and leads her in love. And the wife looks to the husband and says, you lead us well. Where do you want, what's your vision for our family? I want to follow you. I will follow you. And the kids are nurtured with affection and love and discipline and where the marriage bed is filled with encouragement and affirmation and generosity. Who wants to be liberated from that? That is God's design for a home. Oh, friends, don't tinker with it. Don't change it. It's beautiful. Don't go the way of Esau. So, There are our first two warnings then against marrying outside the people of God and against redefining marriage. We'll look at one or two more and then we'll close down for this Sunday and finish out next week. The second warning kind of comes up in the first verse of chapter 27, but it's subtle, easy to miss. Second warning is against passive family leadership, passive fatherhood, passive leadership. Now as we looked at the little part we just looked at, Esau getting married, Genesis likes to speak in, in echoes, right? Something will happen, and then a similar thing will happen again, and then a different thing, but similar, will happen again. And so often, whenever a thing happens, somebody dies, somebody gets married, somebody has a baby, you want to compare it to the times that's happened in the past. So what's similar? What's different? We take Esau's marriages here, and we compare that to chapter 24, where his father Isaac gets married. We find some great similarities and stark differences. They both marry at 40 years old. So that's enough to tell us, hey, these are connected. That's, that's interesting. Usually it doesn't record how old they are when they get married. Both married at 40. And strangely, Isaac's marriage story is long and drawn out. It reads like a Christian romance novel. It's beautiful, right? all kinds of plot tension in it, beautiful poetic devices, and it ends beautifully. Esau's marriage story is short and abrupt. He took this woman, he took this woman. At the end, they made life bitter, right? No, no, no eloquence there, so very different. <clears throat> Isaac's marriage, it says at the end of chapter 24, brought him comfort and delight. It notes, right? Isaac was comforted after the death of his mother when he received Rebekah as his wife. Contrast with that, Esau's marriage brings bitterness for them, right? So, so some similarities, some differences. And maybe we notice that, maybe we don't, but then we roll into chapter 27. It says, and Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. And then we realize, oh, that sounds just like the beginning of Isaac's marriage story. Remember that? Abraham was old and his eyes were dim and he could not see. And he was on his bed and he called someone to him. And then all of a sudden we realize, wait, where was Isaac in all this? Where? Abraham saw that it wasn't good for his son Isaac to marry the women of the land, so he sent a servant off to find a wife for him. The servant came back with Rebekah for him. Where was Isaac in Esau's marriage story? We kind of forgot about him. He didn't take initiative and teach his son, 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 don't marry the women of the land. We'll find out later. Esau just kind of figures it out from, from conjecture. And he doesn't step up to send for a wife for him or arrange any of this. Isaac is a fully passive character. And all this great contrast with Abraham who takes initiative to find a son for his wife. And so we see here the bitter fruits of a father who takes a passive role in his son's lives. Isaac has been up to this point a very obedient man, obedient to God. But now we kind of realize all his obedience is, is passive obedience. He, he doesn't do the things he should not 
do. When, when his father leads him up a mountain when he's a, a young man or an older boy and is about to sacrifice him at God's hand but is rescued at the last minute by the angel of God, Isaac doesn't resist. He's like, okay, yeah, tie me up, put me on the altar. Right? He's an obedient son, doesn't do what he shouldn't do and resist. How profound. And then after this, his wife is barren for 20 years and when his father took a concubine in the same situation, tried to bear children through another woman, another corruption marriage, Isaac doesn't do that. Then the Lord tells Isaac, don't go to Egypt, and so he doesn't go to Egypt. You see the pattern here. Isaac doesn't do what he shouldn't do. He's an obedient man. He doesn't do the things he shouldn't do, but here's the problem. He also doesn't do the things he should do, and so we see a, a deep principle there. Passivity and obedience aren't the same thing. For the Christian, there is passive obedience because there are many do not commands in the Bible. But there's also active obedience because there are many do commands in the Bible. And to obey God is not to pick one or the other, but it is to not do the things he tells us not to do and to do the things that he tells us to do. So we see, especially when it comes to fatherhood, especially when it comes to leadership, to not act when one should act can bring deep consequences on a family or on a group that is led and trusts someone. This bears itself in our culture in different ways with young men and and, and young women. I'll, I'll go through some of it here. Young men today, one of the tough burdens we have to bear is, is that for kind of our whole lives, uh, we've been taught to not do stuff. Like the, the, the do not commands are real strong in the schoolhouses in our culture and in the messages in our culture. And so uh, for the last couple generations, men my age and younger, we can remember being in school and hearing, don't fidget in your chair, right? And then, nope, don't run around like that. Nope, don't, don't talk loud during class, right? Don't run around too much on the playground, right? Don't do that, don't do this, don't, 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 don't. And then the, we get a little older, and it's don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, uh, don't go do what you want to do with that girl, don't look at that thing on the internet that you want to do, like all very good do not commands that we should not do, right? And then we get even older and we're getting messages now that are good messages to don't oppress women and, 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 and don't participate in harassment in the workplace. All important commands, right? But they're all do nots. And what we don't hear very much of is, is do. Well, okay, there's what I don't do, but what do I do? And so we have an awful lot of young men who are filled with initiative and drive to do things, to build things, to find one woman and love her like crazy and take care of her. And all of us looking around and going, well, what do I do with all that burning desire in me? Because all we've ever heard is do not, do not, do not. And sometimes that can turn in the heart to just don't. Just stay out of the way, play video games, don't do anything, don't hurt anybody. But young men, hear me. Passivity is not obedience. Staying out of the way is, is not obedience. Your inner desire to do things, to initiate things, to build things, to find a woman and love her like crazy, it doesn't need to be muted. It needs to be directed. And so let the Word of God direct that desire. 
This comes to play so much in fatherhood, the situation Isaac is in here. A godly father is an active man. A godly father gets up off the couch to discipline his child again and again. And then says, man, I don't want to get up one more time. And he gets up again to discipline his child. And then he gets up again to teach them. And he wants to just sit there at the dinner table and eat, but no, he takes that. There's a good time to teach my children about this. He initiates family worship in his home. He does and he does and he does. A godly father is an active father. So young men, find that desire. If it's been muted, let the Bible direct it and do good in this world. There's a version of this that hits women, especially young women, too. Because uh, the church has, in a lot of corners, done a good job of teaching God's design for marriage. Right? A man that leads his wife and a wife that follows the leadership of her husband. And sometimes it's either proclaimed poorly or our hearts hear it wrong. And what a young woman can hear is, I need to be a doormat for my husband. Right? I need to be just a totally passive woman who doesn't do anything and just lets him do his thing. But, but no, passivity is not obedience. Those aren't the same thing. Being a doormat for your husband to walk on, that's not biblical submission, wives. That's not what the Lord calls from you. And if you want a picture of this, a godly wife is an active wife. She is doing stuff. She is busy. If you want a picture of that, when you go home today, just flip to Proverbs 31, and there's a section in there about alcohol. I can skip over that for now. Good stuff, but after that, an ode to the virtuous wife, an excellent wife. Who can find and read through all these pictures of this virtuous woman, and you will find a picture of a Fortune 500 CEO. I mean, this woman is busy. She is doing stuff. She's buying property without even talking to her husband about it first. It says the heart of her husband trusts her, and she, he will have no lack of gain because he can put whatever he wants on her shoulders. She can bear it. She can do it. She gets things done. No, a biblical wife is an active woman. A biblical mom is an active woman. She gets things done. So do you see the difference here? It is good to not do the things you should not do, but there are also things you should do. And to obey God is to do the things you should do while you don't do the things you should not do. Okay, I'm going to leave it there for now. This story is long. The lessons in it are long. Next week, we'll look at two more warnings, the danger of showing favoritism to your children, as both parents do here, and the dangers of manipulation in the household. When families and brothers and sisters and moms start manipulating each other and lying, it gets dirty. Then we'll look at God's assurance and how he accomplishes his purpose despite our sin. Here's where we'll land this now. We've gotten two, really three good principles from our God. Uh, but here's the thing. Morals are never enough. They're never enough to change hearts. Uh, what they can do, though, is they can show us, oh, mercy, I have not done life God's way. Right? Oh, man. And then you look to a holy God who says, I do not forget the one who sins against me. And we say, oh, mercy, what, what am I going to do? Right? A holy God that judges sinners, and I have, I have sinned against him. And I continue living my life the wrong way. How will I be made right? What will I do? And this is all the Spirit of God plowing the heart to prepare us to receive the gospel of Jesus, whereby Jesus Christ says, I have come to earth, God made man. I have offered myself as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of all who would trust in me. And so if you hear even these principles and you cry out to God, what will I do? I have lived the wrong way. Let me call you right now. 
place your faith in this Jesus Christ. Find forgiveness for all of your sins. Find eternal life given to you as a promise. And then find the Spirit of God dwelling in you to change you, to help you walk in His good ways. This is the promise of the gospel. And that trust you can place in Him is called faith. We call you faith in Jesus Christ even right now. Let's pray for a moment. We'll ask the Lord to help us with some of these things.